This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's Friday. We close another week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything and everything. All we need you to do is to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. I can't believe it's Friday already, but tonight is kind of exciting for us. Um, um, I am, we are going to be ordaining a new pastor tonight uh, here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, Matt Blanton will be doing uh, the, the Bible teaching tonight. Uh, after we ordain him and he joins our pastoral staff, one of the truly great things that we get to do here is watch people grow in the Lord. Uh, Matt and his family, Lauren and and Finley and Ari, um, they've been with us now for I guess about three years. years. And uh, when when they first came in, you know, we didn't know them, but they just started stepping up and serving. I teach a pastor's discipleship class. Um, that's typically, we, it's not been this way during the COVID quarantine, but typically it was every other Saturday, and Matt and his family were coming to that. Uh, just clear that God had a calling on his life, and tonight we get to realize that call, because God is faithful. So uh, we're excited about that here tonight at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. And of course, we're all going to church on Sunday, wherever it is that you go to church. Uh, remember to go and use the gifts that God has given you. Uh, be a blessing to others. Don't worry about what God's going to do with you. If you make yourself available to Him, He will use you. And it's the same Him. He'll speak to your heart. He'll challenge you as well. So that's uh, this weekend. And in a nutshell, let's get to questions while we are awaiting your phone calls. I have two questions from the same person at Leviticus. This is from Ariana. And she says, hello, Pastor Ron, do you know what the significance of 
the significance is of washing the legs and organs of the burnt offerings made in Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Now, I'm going to take the time to read this. Now, she sent it to me in big letters, so I appreciate that, Ariana. Um, out of the New Living Translation, it's not nearly as good as some of the other translations, but because I can read it, I'm going to read it, and I think it's important that we kind of understand this. Uh, it says, If the animal you present as a burnt offering is from the herd, it must be a male with no defects. Now, I think the first thing to understand, Ariana, about this is that it has to be from your herd. It's got to be something that costs you to give it. That's the point. You can't go out and get a wild offering and then just um, pass that off. It's got to cost you something. There's got to be a connection to it. If your sins are going to be covered, and that's what the Old Testament was doing with these offerings, is covering their sins uh, from year to year. It's unlike the blood of Jesus that washes away all our sins, past, present, and future. But, but it had to be something you were connected to. It had to mean something. So it had to be an offering from the herd. It must be a male with no defect. Bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle so you may be accepted by the Lord. Lay your hand on the animal's head, and the Lord will accept its death in your place to purify you, making you right with him. Then slaughter the young bull in the Lord's presence, and Aaron's sons, the priests, will present the animal's blood by splattering it against all the sides of the altar that stands at the entrance to the tabernacle. Then skin the animal and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, will build a wood fire on the altar. They will arrange the pieces of the offering, including the head and the fat, on the wood offering, uh, on the wood burning on the altar. Now let me stop there for a moment because this is really important. The idea here is being completely consumed. Uh, it has to all be burned up. Um, uh, you know, you can't give part of it. You can't keep some for yourself. This is an offering to the Lord. And of course the New Testament principle here, Ariana, for all of us, is that um, um, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Our bodies, who we are, our, our, our body, soul, spirit, Everything we are, everything we ever will be, we're to offer our whole being to Jesus. And that's why this, this um, offering uh, on the wood fire, wood altar, is really, really important. It has to be all of it, and it has to be completely consumed. Our application, of course, would be that we can't have some on, uh, you know, well, I'll give you most of this part of me, Lord, but I want this part for myself for a while. We're to die to our flesh every day. But then he says this, but the internal part, the organs, and the legs must first be washed with water. Now, the other translations, Ariana, here say entrails. So what we're talking about is the, the, the colon, the intestines, um, uh, everything that would be contaminated. And it needs to be washed with water because it has to be completely clean. In the same way, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all of our, our metaphorical entrail filth from our previous lives. It says, Then the priest will burn the entire sacrifice on the altar as a burnt offering. It's a special gift, pleasing, uh, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, this pleasing aroma matters a great deal because when we're walking in the will of God, Ariana, um, imagine Jesus being pleased. Now, when you put all of the fat, going back to the, the offering, when you put all of the fat along with the meat on the altar, can you imagine how that smelled? 
I mean, it was just, it, it's a barbecue, but it, but, but it would have smelled so wonderful. Well, that's the way our lives, completely consumed by God, smell to the Lord. When Paul writes that we're to find out what pleases the Lord in Ephesians. Find out what pleases the Lord. When we do that, and then we offer our bodies to what pleases the Lord, then we're just like that offering uh, of the uh, of the sacrifice on the altar. Now, she asked us an additional question. She said, as I'm continuing to read through Leviticus, I'm seeing more of the same thing when or where in a certain sacrifice the Lord is asking them to remove certain body parts from the sacrifice. Does each body part symbolize something different in each sacrifice? If so, will you go just go through a few of them? Ariana, the, the import here is only that the contaminated parts are washed and taken away. That they can't be offered. The insides, the, the, the parts that would be defiled uh, by, by uh, fecal matter and other things, um, those parts, uh, we, we don't offer that to God. So we take that, it, it can't be sacrificed with a good part of us. And again, that picture is just really, really clear. Jesus said that when we believe in him, our sins are as far from us as east is from west. That means our sins are never where we are again. You can't start going east and end up going west. You're just going east in a circle all the time. So Jesus is saying your sins are as far from you as it's possible to be. And that's all this is as a picture. Now, Ariana, I commend you for reading um, Leviticus. Keep at it. Don't be discouraged. It gets tedious, really, really tedious at times. Um, but basically, the whole book of Leviticus is about how much God hates sin. So uh, thank you for that, Ariana. I hope that helps you clarify things just a little bit. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, are 12-step groups compatible with biblical Christianity? Anonymous, not only are they not compatible, they're antithetical to biblical Christianity. A 12-step group, now I get in trouble every time I say this, by the way, because 12-step groups, they're well-intended, but they're for unbelievers. Now, I know some people get saved at 12-step groups, uh, groups. I know that, that they're always looking for a higher power, but, but in a 12-step group, and I have been in one, by the way, in my pre-Christ life, um, in my uh, experience, the, the, the higher power can be anything that you want it to be. It can be something that you focus on. I, I had one guy in the group, I was in a Gambler's Anonymous thing for a bit, and uh, his higher power was a pencil eraser. And he, he just focused on the pencil eraser. Of course that's incompatible with Christianity. Um, but the 12-step group, the whole idea is once an addict, you're always an addict, you're always one drink away or one uh, gambling time away or one use of drugs away from from falling apart all over again. And the 12-step groups, and this is the, 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 the most dangerous thing about them, is that they teach just the opposite of biblical freedom. Our Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. So the 12-step groups are aimed at modifying behavior. Now, that's not a bad thing for an unbeliever. Anything that would modify behavior, especially destructive behavior like drinking or drugs or gambling, 
Anything that can do that is a good thing for somebody who doesn't know Jesus. But Anonymous, if you know Christ and you've been made brand new and the power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us, well then why do we need to be chained to this once an addict, always an addict thought process? The practical reality is that the 12-step group, the higher power, is in fact the meetings themselves. As long as you go to the meetings and you keep dredging up keep dredging up all of the pain from your past, you feel really, really crummy about yourself. Well, that's enough of incentive for some people to stop doing the destructive behavior. Again, that's okay for unbelievers. It is not okay for Christians. So again, 12-step groups have their place, but that place is in an unbelieving world. We who are believers have been rescued. We have been delivered from all of these things. And I said a, a few moments ago, I always get in trouble with this because we always think, you know, we want to applaud anybody who's trying to do anything to get better. But the, but the problem is they don't really get better. Again, their behavior modifies sometimes, but typically not for long. And imagine the burden of feeling like you're just one missed meeting away from starting all over again the destructive behavior. So, uh, hard, hard thing. I remember Anonymous doing a, a men's retreat in Idaho. And, um, uh, you know, in, in mountain areas in particular, people drink a lot. And I, I wasn't going to talk about 12-step groups. I didn't realize that the people that were part of a 12-step group. And I made a comment about the freedom that we have in Christ and used the, the, the uh, um, slavery of being involved in the 12-step group as an illustration. And boy, people were upset coming to me during the breaks. Well, what do you mean about this? I've been in the 12-step group for 10 years. I haven't had a drink in 10 years. And I would ask them, yeah, but are you closer to Jesus? I didn't realize that so many of the men who were at that retreat were alcoholics or drug addicts and involved in 12-step programs. Uh, and, and every one of them, when I would talk to them, and I took the time to talk to them, even though they were a little upset with me, I just asked them, so tell me, how is this doing in helping you be like Jesus? Are you getting to know him better? Are you closer to him? Do you love him more? And they would answer with things like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not disappointing my family or, oh, well, well, I'm trying to do better. I, I mean, that counts for something. But, but, but none of them could explain to me that it's helped them become more Christ-like. So no value for believers in 12-step groups. If you're angry with me, send me a nice email, please. Be respectful. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Rhonda. She says, when I'm reading commentaries, how can I make sure that the author is right? You know, Rhonda, um, the Holy Spirit lives in you. You have the, the, the spirit of discernment within you. But you want to check um, resource material, original source material for the commentators. Now, there are commentators. I actually learned a lot from reading bad commentaries and bad commentators. Um, I, I learned a lot because God was teaching me, and this was pretty much at the beginning of my walk with the Lord, he was teaching me to be discerning, to be able to pick out good stuff from bad stuff. And I can spot heresy from, or, or even that which drifts toward heresy 
very, very quickly. I can, re- I can just go to a couple of, of verses and say, well, what do they say about this? And I can tell where they're coming from and whether or not it's good. But when you're reading someone and it sounds right to you, remember, there's bibliographies and footnotes. Both of them are in those commentaries. And you can go to the original source material and find out for yourself. So that's what I do. A lot of the modern commentaries, rather than being scholarly, they're more devotional. And I like them, and they're great. Uh, One of my favorites is Alan Redpath, as an example. And um, um, uh, Warren Wearsby, who just went to be with the Lord last year, is another of my favorites. Um, But when you get to the scholarly ones, and they're they're quoting... um, um, Sources from um, the 13th, 14th, 15th century, or they're going even further back into church history, and then they're 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 moving forward uh, in time as they study and and um, um, rightly divide the word. Um, you can go right to their footnotes and right to their bibliographies, and you can find some of that resource material yourself. Rhonda, one other thing that I would like to say about this. Um, I am not a huge commentary fan. Uh, You know, I don't believe that the first thing we ought to do when we're going to study Romans, for example, is go get a commentary on Romans. Now, there are great commentaries on Romans, and I'm I'm all for them, but I think we need to have a familiarity with the passages of Scripture that we're, we're, we're studying before we are influenced by what somebody else says about them. And then as you're putting your thoughts together, then the commentaries become very, very useful and they'll kind of set you on a path. If, if, if what you are, are, are discerning from a passage of Scripture is different from reliable commentators that you've grown accustomed to, um, then you might be on the wrong track. So then the commentators and the commentaries can help get you right back on schedule. So... Um, um, Again, commentaries have their place, and um, I have my favorite commentators. Uh, I no longer, I don't have to really test them. There's no lack of trust. I've, I've read so much of them in the past that I know where they're coming from. Uh, but, but remember, the commentary is secondary to the original reading and studying on your own, letting the Holy Spirit uh, teach you how to interpret and rightly divide the word. And then the commentators sort of just sharpen you up. Commentaries are great, just they have to be in the right place. Good question, Rhonda. Thank you, and keep reading your Bible. Leonard wants to know, why did Jesus heal on the Sabbath if it was a violation of the law? Well, Leonard, we know that Jesus never violated the law, so healing on the Sabbath was not a violation of the law. It was a violation of the way that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, and the scribes understood the law, but it wasn't a correct understanding of the law. And one of the things Jesus wanted to do was show them. Remember when he said to him, he said, you know, you, you, you very carefully divide your mints and your spices and, and your grains of wheat for, for offering, you know, 10%, make sure they get 10%. Um, um, but but you, you you neglect the weightier matters of the law of love and Jesus when he came to tell the, uh, the the religious leaders what the law was they were always after him for healing on the Sabbath which they considered a violation because it was a work 
But what Jesus was saying to him, no, 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 the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And that's what he was telling them. So Leonard, Jesus never violated the law. What he tried to do was correct the misguided understanding of the law that bound the religious leaders and so many other Jews for so many centuries. So um, if Jesus violated the law, we'd be lost in our sin. But he didn't. Good question. Thank you. Jason says, modern day prophets and apostles, are they real? Jason, this is another question that I get quite often. Uh, The answer is no. I have a question coming up later. I don't know how far down the line. I don't know if I'll get to it today or not. uh, About uh, a particular man who claims to be a prophet. Um, um, But modern day prophets, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 and beyond, um, um, they're no longer necessary. They're no longer gifts given to the church. They are gifts that were given to the church. In the first century, there were prophets. We know who those prophets were. They're named in the Bible. Now, we don't know all of them, of course, but, but we know all of the writers of the New Testament were prophets. We know that uh, Agabus, I call him the dramatic prophet, he was a prophet. Uh, Philip, we are told, had four daughters who were prophetesses. So we know their names. And the way they functioned was, was sort of like uh, a, a Bible. They, they didn't have the Bible that you and I have, Jason. So they functioned that way. They would, they would get direction from the Holy Spirit when people would say, I've got a question, what about this? And some of those questions are, are asked, you know, when Paul addresses the churches in Corinth and in, in Thessalonica in particular, also the churches in the province of Galatia. Um, um, you know, he, he, he talks to them about, the, the, the answers, the questions that they have about things that they wouldn't know how to deal with. And so um, um, those modern-day prophets would, would say, thus saith the Lord, or this is what the Lord declares is the answer to this situation. And so he spoke to them, and what they would do, not foretell the Word of God, like the Old Testament prophets did. They, they told the future. Well, the modern-day prophets didn't tell the future unless they knew they were doing so. For example, John was an old-fashioned prophet prophesying all the way to the very end in the book of Revelation. But most of these prophets, those that circulated in the different bodies that were established, uh, they simply um, helped people uh, instruct them. We would call them teachers because they would give uh, the direction that the people needed to take when there were questions about practice and application and things like that. So no prophets, anybody that says, I am a prophet of God, thus saith the Lord today, is a false prophet, and we need to pay them no attention. Regarding the apostles, the same thing is true. Uh, we know who the apostles are, their name for us in the New Testament, but they were laid along with the prophets as a foundation for the church. God's gift to the church was this solid foundation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul writes, No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Well, he laid that foundation by giving the church apostles and prophets, and the church is being built. The Greek language is in the, the present continuous tense. 
The church is being built on the foundation that has already been laid. That's in the past tense. So, Jason, there are no modern-day prophets and apostles. If somebody says they are one, then you need to run from them. That's one of the problems that we have in this crazy, charismatic world that we live in. Everybody wants to speak for God. Now, I'm inside two minutes. I'm not going to go to another question, but let me just, if you would um, indulge me just for a moment. God wants each and every one of us to learn to hear his voice. The way we do that, of course, is to know the Word of God. That means we've got to study to show ourselves approved, work men, work women, rightly dividing the Word. But God also will speak to your heart. And you've got to discern whether that's God or another spirit. First John chapter 4 says that we're to test the spirits because not every spirit is from God. There's a lot of spiritual noise out there. And so we've got to be able to discern. The only way we can discern, Jason, is whether or not or uh, whether or not something is from God, is by knowing the Word. If something that somebody says or something that we think we've heard from God contradicts what the Bible already says, well, then we know it's a false prophecy. We know it's the spirit of the Antichrist rather than the spirit of Jesus Christ. Very, very important. We've got to know what we're talking about. And, and you know, we need not to get too proud we think we hear something from God. Um, you know, I'm being screamed at by spirits all the time, so I've really got to activate discernment, and so too do you. So, Jason, I hope that answers your question. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our week is all. Time is flying. Phones have been quiet this week. We'd love your live calls and questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. I just said before the break, boy, time is really flying fast. That two-minute break seemed like it was about two seconds long, so I almost missed it. 340-9585, here's a question from our mobile app from Scott. He says, is Acts chapter 12, verse 15, a reason why people believe that there are guardian angels? Was that a belief at that time as well? Um, Acts 12.15 says it must be his angel uh, referring to Peter um, um, when he was released from jail and he knocked on the door and Rhoda answered but slammed it because they couldn't believe their prayers had been answered. Um, uh, Scott, the answer is yes. Um, that's the reason people believe uh, in guardian angels or a verse that they use to, to justify believing in guardian angels. I personally don't think that's what it says. I don't think we have a guardian angel. I think we have uh, myriads of guardian angels. The Bible uh, says that they keep they're staring at the face of Jesus looking for direction, and it's Jesus who dispatches them. I've told the story about my what I'm certain are two angelic encounters in my life, um, but I don't think it was the same angel. There's no justification, I think, for saying it's the same angel. 
Uh, but God always has the angels around the throne, and his eyes are everywhere. You know, he's, he's seen in some of the Old Testament visions as having eyes everywhere under his wings and all over the, the images. And, and, and Jesus sees everything. And so when he sends an angel to, to rescue us, I don't think that necessarily means he's a guardian angel. I think a couple of things. One, uh, our, our culture, um, the idea of having a guardian angel um, is, is a romantic one. Uh, we like that idea that there's somebody always watching out for us. Uh, I think uh, it's a wonderful life, Clarence, the angel. You know, we think, oh boy, I probably got an angel like him. Um, but but I, I don't. I personally don't believe. Now I can't say you're wrong, but um, uh, or somebody's wrong when they believe in guardian angels. I just don't think. I think that's a leap of logic to come to that conclusion. Uh, it's possible. But I personally think unlikely. But Scott, that's one of the reasons um, that we have that. I think also in Luke chapter 16, when the angels escort um, the rich man and Lazarus into their prospective um, compartments in, uh, in the abyss, uh, I think that's another place where, where we have a tendency to get that. So I hope that makes sense to you. Let's go to Sandra on line one from San Antonio. Sandra, thanks for being our first caller today. You're on the air. Yes, thank you. Um, I have a sort of a crazy question. I am, uh, I've always, um, I guess, justified things that when two or more people are gathered in his name, that if it's God's will, then it be done. And with regards to two people who want to marry but don't want or need or feel or they need a a clergy person to marry them. If you go before uh, God, two people together, would God recognize that marriage? No, Sandra. And and the reason is because, um, you know, God would never tell you something that violates the rest of his word. We're to be submitted and obedient to the laws of the land. So marriage can't be something that is just convenient. Um, uh, th- there has to be commitment. I, as earlier talking about the the uh, question of, of the sacrifices, um, that it has to be clean sacrifice. It has to be something that costs. And there needs to be a commitment in the sacrifice of our whole body, soul, and strength. But in this case, in a marriage, marriage is so revered by God, it's the one relationship on earth that represents the relationship that Jesus has with his church. And it needs to be holy, it needs to be pure, and it needs to be compliant with laws. So when two people go before God and say, well, you know, we're married in God's eyes so we can have sex, we're, we're simply being willfully disobedient uh, and justifying it by saying, well, you know, the two of us agreed, and, and so uh, it's, it's, it's not God's will for us to do that. I also think, Sandra, that we need to realize that when um, we hear that passage of Scripture taught, you know, if anybody agrees on anything, uh, then you have what you, you, God hears your prayer, you have what you prayed for. Um, um, you know, a lot of times it's easy to go find somebody who will tell you to do what you want to do, and you can say, okay, well, agree with me. Or we'll pray for somebody to be healed. And, well, two of us prayed to be healed, so God, we're going to get the answer to this prayer. I think we're misunderstanding that. We to, to, to pray in the will of God, we've got to pray according to His will, but not what we hope His will will be 
but what His will really is. And we've got to uh, admit that we don't know the will of God in certain things, with healings in particular, those kinds of things um, are, 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 are not clear to us. But in the example that you gave, when two people want to go before the Lord, don't want to stand before clergy, and then you don't have to be married by, by a pastor, you can go to the to the courthouse and get married by um, a judge, and and it's going to be fine. It's legal. Get a license, and it's going to be legal. But to to do it any other way is to willfully violate the the commandment of God to make this marriage whole. The, the marriage bed is to be undefiled. We're told, and that means we've got to be compliant. Does that help? Yes, it does. Thank you so much. I really appreciate okay. that. My pleasure, Sandra. Thank God bless you. Thank you for calling. You know, that's something that we get a lot here. You know, well, we're married in God's eyes, and why do we have to do this? It's just a piece of paper. And I always tell people, especially the woman, if 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 all the marriage is, a marriage license is to the man, is a piece of paper, he's going to treat you like that's all it is. And there's no commitment. So that's just one of those things that we need to be, um, know for sure that we are in the will of God. Here's a question from Victor. <laughs> I'm laughing, Victor, because I just read the question. You're, you're asking me. It's funny. Victor says, how important it is to have a nice church facility or building? Now, Victor, you know, I hope, you're talking to somebody whose church is in a strip mall. Um, the Lord spoke to our heart a long time ago. said, my money is for ministry, not for mortgage. Now, that doesn't mean that other people have a mortgage on their churches they're in sin or that they're wrong. I don't mean that at all. But but his instructions to me specifically, and we have a very unique ministry. We do everything for free. We never ask for money, those kind of things. And the truth is, we're spending so much money on these things that we're doing, whether it's a free school or, or, or the doctor's office or Man House or uh, this radio program and, and, and our teaching programs. Um, we don't have any money. So we couldn't build a nice building, nor could we afford a bigger building um, until the Lord makes it clear. And then, of course, without a mortgage, we'd have to be able to pay for it cash. So obviously, Victor, my answer is going to be that I don't think it's very important. Now, I also want to say there's nothing wrong with a beautiful church facility. I wish I had one. I really do. We need room and we need space and um, the work that God does here is amazing, but uh, there is a little tinge of envy. Now, I don't mean sinful envy. It used to be. You go back 15 years and boy, there was a whole lot of sinful envy and jealousy when I'd see somebody building a new building or some other church uh, um, making upgrades in their facility. I'd think, oh Lord, why them and not me? Um, but then you take Paul's advice and you learn the secret of being content in any and all circumstances. And I can tell you something, Victor, you know, a lot of churches um, stop their schools and, and their schools that they charge a lot of money for because they, they couldn't make financial sense of it. Um, ours completely makes no financial sense. And uh, we've never even for a moment considered scaling back or closing things down. So I just don't think it's that important. I think it's it's uh, God has a different will for every church. We got the same general will. We can open our Bibles, but 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 every church has a different plan 
um, in, in heaven. And, and we who are pastors or church leaders, we need to be um, eager to go before the Lord and say, okay, what's your plan for us? Where do we fit in? And then be obedient to that. So uh, I don't think it's it's all that important. I'll say one other thing, Victor. You know, when we first started, before we had the building that we're in now, we were in a, uh, we started out in an apartment recreation center, and then we went to a daycare center that one of our members, who's now an elder, they owned it. And, um, um, you know, people would walk in and say, wow, this doesn't feel like a church. It doesn't look. And someone would, would, would be so bold as to say things like, well, call me when you get a real church. I can't tell you how much they missed out on. I cannot tell you how much they missed out on. Sometimes having nothing is really exciting place to be. And that's where we've been for a long time. So thank you. I hope that makes sense to you. Here is a question from Lane. Lane says, The Bible says God doesn't change, so why did the church change the Sabbath to Sunday? Um, Lane, the Bible, you, God, God does not change. He's, he's immutable. Um, um, but but when, when the Bible says that, it's not talking about his methods. It's talking about his character, his nature, his perfect word. None of that changes. So I think it's really important that you understand that. To say he doesn't change so like everything always stays the same uh, is demonstrably untrue. We know, for example, that God dealt with Moses and Joshua completely differently. Moses, you be my voice. You speak to the people for me. You come up with me, then you go down and tell them. When Moses died, Joshua was terrified, and, and God said, don't worry, you've got my word. Don't let the word depart from you. Don't turn to the left, don't turn to the right, but the word, the word, the word. And I'm going to speak now to the people, Joshua, through my word. And then we can go even farther down the road where Jesus enters the picture. In Hebrews chapter um, one starts out with, with in the beginning, or, or I'm sorry, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers at various times and in various ways through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in Son. In other words, Jesus is God's final statement. So there are different changes of methods. Now, the change of the Sabbath, remember, Jesus closed the Old Testament law. This is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood. New replaces old. So the old covenant of which the Sabbath law was very important, that was changed and there was a new covenant. In the early church, the first century church, you can read it in Paul's letters, also in the book of Acts, they're the ones who changed uh, the day of corporate worship to Sunday, the first day of the week, to commemorate or to honor the day of his resurrection. So, Lane, uh, the church didn't change it uh, other than uh, having been given the direction by God to do so. The, the apostles uh, who spoke for God, the New Testament prophets, they spoke for God. Um, God spoke to them, and they began meeting on the first day of the week. The resurrection changed everything, and so Sunday honors that. It's also interesting in Jewish numerology, uh, number eight is, is the number of new beginnings. 
seven, everything was complete, perfect. Um, on the eighth day, they start all over again. And so we always had that picture. Remember, it was the eighth day that Jewish males were to be circumcised. On the eighth day of their lives, they were circumcised. Why? That was a ritual looking forward to Jesus Christ. So, Lane, the church didn't just arbitrarily change it. The old covenant was closed. And Jesus gave us a new covenant of grace. Thank you for the question. Gladys says, oh, let me take a phone call first. We've got that. I like the phone calls. Uh, let's go to line one and talk with Brian from San Antonio. Brian, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, okay. Uh, we, Me and my wife used to go to church over there years, about three years ago, until we moved to the other side of the world, Vaughn Army. <laughs> and uh, so... Um, but uh, I got a really basic question. I, sh- I should be in a Christian. I should know this, but it's, it's affecting me differently. It's probably a two-part question because first question is, I know God says to pray. The Bible says to pray, so that's what we need to do, even though God knows what we're praying for before we need to ask. But and then the second, so I will pray. My wife is has a chronic liver disease and needs a transplant, and I don't think I I don't know if I told the church that. I know I've been communicating with Master Gunny, your your right hand man. Uh, he knows, <laughs> but um, um, she's on the transplant list finally, but she's very low on the list. So, and unfortunately, she's going to have to get worse before she can even get a transplant. Oh, and she's going through really, really, really rough times now. She doesn't sleep. She sleeps off and on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Sometimes, you know, things are better. Sometimes things are worse. But every morning I get up and I pray. And I pray that I ask God to create a miracle. And I really want that. But I know always do that. Then I say, God, if you're not going to do that, if that's not your will to create a miracle, give her the strength and me the strength to help her go through this but you know and I'm sorry getting emotional just talking about this right now yeah, but, that's, I, uh, I understand Brian why why do I have to keep on praying why does, it, why, why does the Bible say continue to pray why should I have to continue to pray when it's starting to feel hopeless useless I'm, I'm having those like why do I have to keep every morning keep up and asking God for the same thing when God knows it? And and I'm not saying that it's wrong that He hasn't healed my wife right now. I know that God allows things to happen for a purpose, and you know whatever that purpose is, it's His purpose. But you know, I, I tell you what, it has gotten me closer to Earth. Uh, mm-hmm. I I ask God to help me be a better husband to make things easier for her. But why do I have to keep... Does God say continue to pray? I guess this, is a long, this could be a very long answer, but that's, that's what's on <laughs> my heart right now. Brian, thank you for, for being honest. And, and now I will be praying for her as well. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I didn't realize that things had gotten that bad. Um, yeah. a, a couple of things. We, we don't know why prayer changes the heart and the mind of God. I, I don't know why. 
uh, in the Bible, God's made decisions with Moses. Um, I'm going to destroy these people. They're on my last nerve. And, and, and he moves on Moses' heart to intercede as a type of Christ. And, and as a result, God's stated intention is, is thwarted or changed. It doesn't mean that God uh, changed his mind. It just means that for some reason he wants us to partner uh, in prayer with his heart for the people that we, we encounter. Um, you may, since you came here, Brian, you may know our story a little bit. Paula prayed for me for 13 years to get saved. For 13 years. And I can tell you that in those 13 years, um, the first 10 or so of those years, um, God was using those prayers to work on her and to change her so that her prayers for me were not selfish, but rather selfless and and thus in the will of God. And then change began to occur very quickly. Uh, Jesus told us a parable about the persistent widow. And, and his stated intention for telling that parable was he said, I told you this so that you might always to pray and never, and never give up. And, and um, so, so why God asks us to do that? Now, I would ask from a different perspective. I don't want you to answer, Brian. This is just between you and the Lord to wrestle with. And I think God is doing something really neat in your heart with this as well. But my question would be, um, why wouldn't you want to pray every day for your wife? I can't imagine how difficult it is to, to watch somebody you love as much as you love your wife suffer every single day and to, and to be tormented without sleep and uh, never quite getting the rest that she needs. I mean, this is really a difficult life. And I think sometimes that constant prayer for her in the will of God not just the flare prayer of God to heal her, but, but that constant aching in your heart that comes out in your prayers, I think that's something that God will use not only for you, but um, who knows what his plan is in terms of answering that prayer sometime in the future. Uh, I wish there was a definitive answer why God heals some and doesn't heal others, but here's what we know for sure. You keep praying, you'll fall more in love with Jesus, and you keep praying for her, and you'll fall more in love with her. And God will find a way to bring peace where there isn't any peace, uh, a contentment where where there's only now frustration. Um, just keep praying and do it as an act of faith and as an act of obedience. And, and let's just see what the Lord does. I can tell you one thing for sure, Brian, that there's going to be a whole bunch of people now praying for the two of you. And um, I'm going to be believing that God is going to move and, and do something. And I pray at least that she will come to a place where she can rest and find some peace in this. So, Brian, I'm sorry for your pain. And um, uh, we'll be praying, okay? All right. Thank you. Okay, Brian. God bless you. Hard things. You know, when, when God, um, we're told to pray about things. Um, I think I think one of the things that, that constant praying does is toughens us up a little bit. Um, you know, Paula wasn't tough enough when she started praying for me at the beginning of that 13 years. And it wasn't too many years into that praying where, where um, boy, Paula wasn't dependent on me at all anymore. She was dependent on the Lord. And, and praying, pouring your heart out. Uh, Brian, if you're still listening, I've got a lot of people that are going through really difficult times physically. 
And I'm never going to stop praying for them, not ever, uh, until they're with Jesus, when then I can rejoice with them. So uh, we'll be praying that she gets moved up on the transplant ladder and does so without having to be, uh, to get much worse. And once more, I want to tell you how uh, sorry we are for the difficulty of your situation. Here's a question from Gladys. Got four minutes so I can do this question. Three minutes, I just got okay. Uh, Gladys says, was Mary Magdalene the woman caught in adultery? My parents say she was. Um, Gladys, she was not the woman caught in adultery. There is no uh, biblical hint even that she was the woman caught in adultery. All we know about Mary Magdalene is that she was filled with seven demons. And those demons were cast out by the Lord. And um, um, the only reason for anybody suggesting that Mary Magdalene was that woman is Catholic tradition, which really, Gladys, has no um, value at all to us because um, the, the Catholic traditions uh, often contradict what the Bible says. In this place, they just sort of made it up. So, no, Mary Magdalene was not the woman caught in adultery uh, in the Gospel of John. Um, Mary Magdalene was one who loved much because she was forgiven much, but uh, it wasn't adultery. That wasn't um, that same incident. I think it's very important that we we don't read too much into it simply because the Catholic tradition says so. So, Gladys, I hope that answers your question. i got time for one more really quick one. This is the one I referred to at the beginning of the program. Zachary says, I saw a prophet named Hank Kuhneman on YouTube. He says, God is going to save America from the election results. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I think, Zachary, he's a false prophet. When I got your question, I looked him up on YouTube. I could only listen to about a minute uh, and a half of him. And he's so um, uh, just horrible, horrible hold. Skull and crossbones horrible. So don't listen to him. Uh, and when um, the election result is ratified. Um, none of these guys are going to issue apologies. They're going to come up with some other thing. And sadly, uh, the people that follow them are going to, um, to to believe him. They're not going to check him out because, oh no, he speaks for God. He's a prophet. He is not a prophet other than he is a false prophet. And he needs to be careful speaking for God um, the way he does is taking God's name in vain. So, um, Hank Kuhneman, um, just X him off your YouTube list. You don't want to spoil yourself with um, his stuff. So, Zachary, I hope that makes sense. Well, we are inside one minute now. Um, we are going to be tonight, I repeat, uh, ordaining Matt Blanton. Uh, we would covet your prayers for Matt and Lauren and the kids. Um, we're excited about what God is going to do. Um, and we're, we're, he's going to be teaching the, the Word tonight. Um, go to church this weekend. Be the servant that God can use. Um, offer your body on that altar as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, pleasing to Him, and you're going to find out just what a rich experience it is. Next week, I'm going to actually start talking about Christmas. So get ready. May the Lord bless you and keep you. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. 
delighted that you take the time to tune in every day. We love you. God bless. See you on Monday. Bye.